Good morning. Trust you all had a good time rowing your boats into church today. So you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We are entering a new section of 1 Corinthians and Paul now shifts his focus to addressing problems in the Corinthians' worship. It's chapters 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, Almost 25% of the epistle is on worship. So how we worship God is important. In uh, chapter 11, the first 16 verses, he speaks about the roles of men and women in worship. In In verses 17 to 24, he addresses their behavior at the Lord's Supper. And then when we get into chapters 12 to 14, He teaches how spiritual gifts should be used for the benefit of the church as a whole. And what links all these together is that Paul wants the church to be properly ordered and structured. When a church is ordered rightly, it conducts itself so that all the members are edified. And that's something important for us to remember Believers are called to live out a cross-shaped life. Uh, The theologians call that cruciform. You ever heard that term, cruciform? That is that we live out the love that Christ showed in his death. The Corinthian church, just like the Western church today, uh, individualism was harming the church. And so the believers were living for self-expression in their own desires rather than aiming for the edification of the church as a whole. And we must remember that. I think one of the hardest issues that we have to tackle as a church in the West is to fight the cultural tide of individualism. It's so important that we understand how different our culture is from the culture of the early church and and, uh, cultures in the East. And that is very important. I also want to know one more thing. Before I read this passage, I want to tell you that this passage easily ranks as one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret. Paul's argument is complicated. There are some expressions that are highly disputed. And culturally, I'm just going to tell you this, culturally, it's a difficult passage to preach. And so uh, with that as an introduction, let's stand together and we'll read God's word together. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 1. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now let me stop there. I was going to refer to this in the sermon, but I'll just skip over and mention it now. When he says the word traditions, we think the, the piano that Uncle Alvin donated 50 years ago or our church has always done it this way. But what he said, when he says traditions here, he's actually speaking of apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. So, so have that in mind. So literally we could read verse number two as, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the teaching of the apostles even as I deliver them to you. Verse 3, but I want you to understand 
that at the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, or head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. Anybody confused yet? All right, we'll keep reading. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. By the way, if anybody knows what that little phrase means, please let me know. Nevertheless, the Lord in the Lord, the woman is not independent of a man or man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I just read a mouthful, and it's really confusing, but I think, I think as we break this down, the meaning of this passage will become apparent to you. That's my prayer that I'm going to pray right now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. I'm reminded of Peter, who told the, the, the people he was writing to that Paul's letters sometimes are weighty and sometimes hard to understand. We're in one of those sections, Lord, and I, I ask that you will grant us understanding through your Holy Spirit. I also pray that you will grant us submission to your word, and I also ask that you will help us to not cave to the dictates of culture, but rather we will obey you uh, and not worry about what culture tries to tell us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Arguably, one of the greatest women tennis players of all time is Martina Navratilova. She won Wimbledon singles nine times. For over three decades, Navratilova has been one of the most widely celebrated gay athletes in the world. She puts herself out there for that very reason. However, in February of 2019, she found herself being disavowed by the LGBTQ community. Why? Why? Because she had the audacity to tweet a month prior to this, this, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to com compete against women. Now to us, that sounds perfectly logical, doesn't it? The problem is that she was advocating standards that disqualified trans women from competing in women athletic events. Can you believe that, by the way, that you're talking about this this morning? We have come to the place 
the extraordinary place where one of the icons of the sexual revolution is now being run over by the train that she led for decades. And, and the issue is all over gender. Now, one of the interesting things about this is whether Navratilova realizes it or not, she um, agrees with the teaching of the Bible. And that is that men and women are fundamentally different. Who knew? Necessarily, um, essentially different by God's good design. And when we fail to understand and to live that out, all kinds of chaos ensues. And so as we dive into our passage today, there are a lot of details that we could get hung up on and miss the main point. And in order to keep the main thing the main thing, I'm going to show you the problem that Paul is addressing first, then I'm going to go backwards to the principle that he stated at the very beginning that guides this whole argument, and then we're going to make some application, all right? So let's look at the problem, verses 4 to 6. What, are the, what is the problem that he is addressing? Let's read it real quick. Verse number 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife will not cover her, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and to shave her head, let her cover her head. Sounds like he's arguing in circles, doesn't it? Feels that way. Clearly, in Paul's day, there were culturally appropriate ways to express the differences in gender. There were some believing women in the congregation who were rejecting those norm, normal ways of expressing differences in gender. That's what's going on here. We don't know if that cultural norm was for women to wear some sort of a head covering, like a turban or a hat or a veil. We don't know. Or if he, he's speaking of them having long hair and wearing it up. We're not exactly sure which one it is. And I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but I do want to give you a little bit of background. I think it'll help. And so some culture. You want to know some culture. This is very important to our understanding of the passage. In Greco-Roman culture, get this, and this is attested to by multitudes of, of historical um, artifacts. A woman's hair was often the object of male lust. This is why in much of the Mediterranean world, the women were expected to either cover their hair or to, to wear it up. That's what they're expected to do. That was an expression of modesty and proper etiquette. So, what came about in first, in first century Greece in those places, upper class women would show their social status by wearing their hair in provocative hairstyles. Does that sound odd to us? Yes, I'm actually saying that women's hair was provocative in that day, much like women's dress can be provocative today. That's the culture. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? Um, 
Paul must address this matter because it was causing great consternation among the Corinthians. And so the custom was that men didn't cover their heads in public worship, whereas women did. Uncovered loose hair was considered lewd and inappropriate. As a matter of fact, uh, for the rich, high society courtesans and, and mistresses in Corinthian elite society were among the few women who actually wore their hair down with no kind of covering on their head. So long, loose hair without a covering was considered quite inappropriate. Now think about it, especially in a church, right? And so you understand, think about the symbolism here. If you have a woman, and, and we have seen it, where she is somewhere and she's dressed extremely provocatively, to come into a worship service where you are worshiping the true God would, would just almost be blasphemous, wouldn't it? That's, that's kind of what was going on in Corinth with the hair. And so Paul is saying, this is important, that just as it would be wrong for a man to cover his head when in worship, it would be equally wrong for a woman to refuse to cover her head. Now, what was that a sign of? If she didn't cover her head, what would that be a sign of? Be rebellion, wouldn't it? It'd be a, a rebellious spirit and open to shameful misunderstanding. And so long, loose hair like that was shameful. And Paul was saying, um, Paul was saying, don't do it. As a matter of fact, if you're going to be that lewd, just go ahead and shave your head, I, I believe is what he's actually saying. So you see the problem in Corinth. Don't get hung up on head coverings. Um, was it a hat? Was it a veil? Was it a shawl? Was it, was it hair? Don't get stuck on the hair, hair coverings and miss the main point, which was this. Women were throwing off normal gender distinctions in a way that was shameful and wrong. Their dress, specifically in the form of some head covering, expressed those gender differences according to the culture of the day, and they were rebelliously refusing to wear them. Do you remember back in the 70s? What was it then? Remember men wearing long hair as a sign of rebellion? Mustaches. I, mean, I grew up in the churches where wearing a mustache was wrong up all the way through the 80s when it lost its significance, right? What, what would it be today? Maybe it would be the short androgynous hairstyles that women wear, uh, androgynous clothing styles that men and women wear today, possibly, I don't know. But uh, you see, it's, it, that's the problem going on. They were throwing off those normal gender distinctions. Now, with that as kind of an explanation, and I don't know how satisfying that is to you, that's the best I can do in 10 minutes, right? Okay, let's go back now to the principle that Paul lays out in verse number three. What's the principle? The principle is this. I'm trying to think how to say it. He says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now look at that order. The order is extremely important. The order is what? Man to Christ, wife 
to husband and then Christ to God. Now that order tells us something. We would naturally do what? We would lay it out this way. The, the head of Christ is God. The head of man is Christ. And the head of the wife is the man. That's the way we would lay it out, wouldn't we? But this would effectively put women on the bottom of the totem pole. He's not saying that man is superior to woman. That's not what he's saying at all. Or that God is superior to Christ. This, this, this principle is not about inferior, inferiority. If this is not about inferiority, I have a hard time with that word, then it's about something even more profound. What is it? What is this about if it's not about um, the pecking order on the totem pole? What he's saying is this. Within the fellowship of the Trinity, each of the three persons of the Trinity voluntarily adopt a role in relationship with respect to one another when it comes to how they interact with their creatures. All right, let me say it one more time. Each member of the Trinity um, adopts a role in a specific relationship when they relate to creation and the creatures within it. As a matter of fact, if you were in the new members class a few weeks ago, I spoke on the doctrine of God and I talked about how important it is how that each member of the Trinity relates differently to his creation. That is so important for us to understand in many areas. So think about this. Um, the, I'll give you one example. You ready? The father sends the son and the son obeys the father. Is that what scripture teaches? It does. It does not teach that the son is subordinate to the father, essentially or eternally. And yet for us and for our salvation, it was the son who took on flesh. He submitted his will to the divine will, learning obedience in all the things that he suffered. Let me give you some evidences from the New Testament. I will, I, this may sound, it may be something you'd never heard before. Let me lay this out in Scripture in the New Testament. For example, John 5.30 says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see that? He was sent by the Father. He's not doing his own will. He's doing the Father's will. Let me lay out another one. John 8, 28. I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. Let me give you another one. John 12, 49 and 50. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father has sent himself, the Father who sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. How about one more? Let me give you one more. Last one, Matthew 26, 39. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said this, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
So here is Jesus in pursuit of eternal plan and purpose of God to secure salvation for sinners. And he is submitting to the Father and he's obeying the Father and keeping the Father's commandments. Therefore, the Bible says the head of Christ is God. This is a submission authority structure, but it's not an inferiority structure. That's what Paul's saying. That's the pattern at the very heart of the universe, the cosmos. At the center of God's dealing with his creature in love stands this pattern of Trinitarian headship and submission. And let me tell you, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let me say one more thing. Let's think about the Trinity a little more depth. There, I, I took out like three paragraphs of material on the Trinity on this, but I want to give you one. Think about this. Think deeply with me. If the Father, Son, now are the Father, Son, Holy Spirit all equally God? They are, aren't they? But if, okay, so they're all equally God, but what if they all had interchangeable roles? We would no longer have a trinity. What we would have is tritheism. We would have three gods. If they all could do the same thing, they all had interchangeable roles, we would no longer have a trinity. We would have tritheism. We have three gods. And so, therefore, there must be differing roles in order for there to be a trinity. There's no differing roles. There is no trinity. Does that make sense? Think about it. I know some of you probably um, have never thought about this, but it's absolutely true. And this is important as we begin to make our applications to humanity today. And so let me give you six applications. Ready? Number one, male and female roles in marriage are to reflect the Trinity. If, If there is equality but differing roles in the Trinity, then there will be in marriage as well. Look at verse number three, right in the middle. It says the head of wife is her husband. Now that word head is used three times here. What does it mean? The most natural meaning is authority. That's the vast majority of the times in the New Testament And almost all of Greek literature, the word uh, head means authority when it's not describing somebody's literal head, okay? It fits the context best. Now some, now listen very carefully, some will sometimes try to argue that the word head means source. Man is the source of that, of the wife, God is the source of Christ. And the problem with that is this. If God is the source of Christ, then we all need to become Jehovah's Witnesses. Seriously. You see the argument? You see how that's important? The word means authority and not source. It can't mean source because then we're uh, moving over into heresy. All right, so again, by saying that God is the head of Christ, 
then Christ's functional submission to the Father does not mean that he's inferior. Have I lost you? I hope, I, I hope you're staying with me. This is really important for us to understand. He is equal but distinct, and he has a different function. Just as a woman is equal but distinct from man with different functions. We call this complementarianism. Complementarianism says that men and women are equal under God but have different roles that complement one another. Just like the Trinity has roles that complement one another. I, I took this out, but I got to say this, this is too good. You do realize that in creation, God decreed, Christ created, and the Holy Spirit sustains creation. That's what the Bible teaches. So they're all complementary roles in creation. You see how that works? So the important thing to see is that Paul, throughout this whole passage, is concerned that the relationship that Christ sustains to the church and the relationship that Christ sustains to his heavenly Father in his uh, work of redemption, it has to be reflected in the male-female role relationships in the church. Now, that's a mouthful. Let me say it in plain English. Ready? The male and female roles in the church must reflect the distinctions of, the, of uh, the Godhead. See what I'm saying? We reflect that in the church. God's a God of order. He wants that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and the church to be reflected in male and female relationships. That makes it necessary then, think about it, if that's true, then that makes it necessary that there's going to be authority and submission exhibited in the lives of men and women in their roles. That's the important thing to remember. If Christ's own relationship of authority and submission is going to be manifested in our relationships, then authority and submission is going to be part of our lives. Bet you all didn't know you're going to dive in this deep today on some of this stuff, right? You stay, are you sticking with me? Number two, this Trinitarian pattern should be visible in the prayer and prophecy of the church. I'm not going to take time to read that section. I'm going to just summarize it. The problem, because we already talked about it under the problem heading. The problem in the church, remember, was the flouting of gender distinctions in the life of the church. But Paul says that the way they dress and make their hair should reflect gender distinctions in role relationships. Listen, this is very important. Women can pray and prophesy in public, Paul says. But they must do so with the demeanor and attitude that supports male headship because in that culture, wearing a head covering communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment. And so let me give you an example. We have a Wednesday night prayer meeting here in the sanctuary, first and third Wednesday nights of the month. The other two are Zoom. You can come here and the women thank the Lord and praise the Lord out loud in the sanctuary with the men. We have a, we have a time of praise and thanksgiving at the very beginning. Men and women are equally um, uh, allowed, loud, I don't like that word, equally welcomed 
to praise the Lord thankfully. And so there's room for that in the church, right? But it must be done in a way that, that um, shows gender distinctions. And so the point of the passage is that they must do so with, uh, with this demeanor that supports male headship and wearing a head covering, uh, communicate a submissive de- um, demeanor, right? In other words, they were looking like women, and they were showing that they accepted male-female relationships set forth in Scripture. I'm not going to spend much time on this. Let's go to number three. Number three application, male and female relationships are rooted in creation. Now let's read this one. Verse number seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the image and glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought not ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All right, let me clear something up. The point of this passage is not that man's created for out of God's glory and woman's not. That's not the point, okay? The point of the passage is that Adam was created first as God's image for God's glory, and woman was created from Adam to be a helper and was his glory, and the two of them together glorify God. She glorified God by being the helper to Adam, his better half, we might say, right? His glory, Adam's glory, listen, Adam's glory was not in himself. Adam's glory was in his wife. Men, let me stop there for just a minute. Your glory is found in your wife. There's no room for a domineering, controlling husband in a marriage. Yeah, I need, I, I need to just preach a whole sermon on this, but um, we'll move on, okay? The glory of man is not to be looked for in, in man, but in his complement, in his wife. God hardwired role relationships into creation itself. That's what he's saying. Now, verse number 10, and he has those famous words, because of the angels, now you ask me, what does that mean? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Ask me in another 10 years, I might have a good answer for you. But right now, I have no answer what that means. So we'll just move on. Number four, distinction in male-female relationships does not mean inequality, but rather interdependence. Look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Now, look back at verses 3 to 10. If you read those in isolation, what could you conclude? If you just isolated those verses, you you could get the idea that men are more important than women. Men are first and women are second. You could get the idea that men are more in the image of God and women are less in the image of God. And so Paul says, man, woman is not independent from man and man is not independent of woman. 
We need one another. And that's the whole point of Genesis chapter number two. We need one another. There's an interdependence. So Paul is undercutting anyone who would undervalue women or think that women are less important than men by explicitly challenging those ideas. And let me say this. The message, I've said this so many times already, I'll say it one more time. The message of the church in first century Roman Empire was countercultural because women had an extremely low status in the culture. They were devalued. Men had um, um, affairs, courtesans, and all this sort of thing. They, they could divorce their wives anytime they wanted for any reason. Even in Jewish culture, if your wife burnt supper, you could divorce her. And Paul is blowing that away and saying that you're interdependent. And when a marriage, let me say something about marriage. When a marriage is working as God intended it to be, you can't tell who's in charge because we're both interdependent of one another. And when a church is functioning as it should, we're interdependent. We need one another, everybody. It's the way God wired us. Number five. The application of this relationship is rooted in nature. Look at verses 13 to 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. Doesn't nature teach that? For her hair is given to her by, for a covering. Now, he's been arguing this case for 10 verses, and he's expecting you to be a quick learner. He's expecting you to say, no, it's not proper for a woman to pray with her hair uncovered. And here we see the particular natural cultural application of the principle of male headship rooted in the creation order, and the application is for women to pray and prophesy in such a way to show their femininity and to show their willing, glad, and joyful submission, and they are not being run over. They are not being treated as second-class citizens. They have vital, functioning roles in the church. I don't think there's a guy in this place that could function without his wife. The wife, she moves along just fine without her husband. Why or husbands don't? We are interdependent upon one another. And we are in church as well. Let me give you last, last application, we'll finish. This teaching is not local, but universal. Look at what he says. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, there's an argument out there that says, well, this is only for the Corinthian church. That's not true. Paul says right here, he also says it in verse number two, that, um, that this is for all the churches. And the point is this. Don't miss the point. The point is that the Corinthians were innovating. The, the apostolic churches, Paul tells us, adhere to this pattern of headship and submission They express it similarly by use of culturally appropriate dress and decorum in public worship 
whatever that happens to be in whatever culture you're in. If you're in an African culture, it may be that women need to wear a head covering. If you're in another culture, it may be that men need to wear a hat. It's different for every culture. They expressed it by use of culturally appropriate dress and decorum in public worship. In a way of thinking, innovation is almost always considered a good thing. I'm amazed at broader evangelicalism, how the innovation is so highly sought after when, God, when the, the epistles are constantly calling the church back to the basics, the word, preaching, prayer, ministering one another, and the Lord's Supper, constantly being called back to that. But we constantly in the church lionize innovators. But when it comes to biblical truth or to the apostolic patterns of church life, it is not a good thing to innovate. We are to align ourselves with the pattern and practice of the whole church and the whole people of God. Now think about this and we're done. We live in a culture that is attacking the whole idea of gender as God made it. The attacks on I, I have a biological gender and I have a gender that I'm going to declare. It's nothing more than an attack on God. The 52 genders or however many there are, I think there's 52. I might be off by now. I don't know. The 52 genders that are declared, that is nothing more than an attack on biblical authority. And so therefore, when the church teaches that men and women are equal and complementary of one another, culture will attack the church. They'll call you old-fashioned. They'll say you're on the wrong side of history. They'll call you narrow-minded. They will mock you and make fun of you. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Be strong. We don't cave into culture. We obey the Lord Jesus Christ because one day, everybody's goal here one day is to stand before the throne and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And all those mockers are going to hear something far different from what we hear. And so we are looking to the glory of God and to the glory of eternity as we address these cultures. Our Heavenly Father, um, this was um, probably a, a tough sermon for some to hear. It's a tough passage to understand, but Lord, it's one that we desperately need in times of, of the attack that's going on on the gender roles as God laid them out. I pray that uh, we will have an understanding of Scripture, what this passage is about, I pray also that we will submit to the teaching of Scripture and that we will not look to society and to culture for our definition of how men and women are to relate to one another. We thank you, Lord, for the submission of Christ to God because if he hadn't submitted, if the roles were interchangeable, we would have no salvation. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who whose function is to glorify and magnify Christ and make the word understandable because without the Holy Spirit, we could never be convicted towards salvation, have an understanding of scripture. 
And we thank you for the Father who decreed all of this. Lord, you are different in your persons, but one in essence. We can't understand that completely, but we can appreciate it and glorify you and honor you for it. In Christ's name, amen. God is good.